Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Roger Reese for a conversation about Diocletian, who was an emperor, a Roman emperor in the 3rd and 4th centuries. So Dr. Reese joins the show, and he's going to share more about what scholars know of Diocletian's life, including the early period of his life, his adulthood and reign as a Roman emperor, and the later period of his life. Dr. Reese is professor in the School of Classics at the University of St. Andrews, based in Scotland. The majority of his research focuses on Latin literature and Roman history from the late Republic to late antiquity. He's the, he has written numerous publications over his career, including the book Diocletian and the Tetrarchy, which was published by Edinburgh University Press. And he's currently writing a biography on Diocletian for Princeton University Press. Welcome to the show, Roger. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. This is exciting. This is exciting. It's great to have a chance to uh, talk about Diocletian to uh, interested parties. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to chatting with you as well, Roger. So to start off with a question and to create sufficient background, and then we can work our way into the uh, details, how would you describe who Diocletian was? Well, you, you said it yourself, Andrew. He was, he was, a, he was a Roman emperor, and uh, he's, um, he's an important figure. He's, he's, he's an important figure in Roman history, uh, he, he often is, 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 it's his reign that is often sort of designated as the start point of, uh, of late antiquity, as it were. Um, so the, 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 the evolution uh, from, from the late third century to the period in, we, we call late antiquity. Um, and he's the guy who kind of ushered that in and was in some respects responsible for in political culture um, as it developed over the next couple of hundred years. So it's an important pioneering figure in Roman political history. So that's one of the reasons I think that he's important, but he's also notorious, um, which makes him curious. He's, he's, he's notorious because one of, his, uh, one, of, one of his various policies was to persecute Christians, and he did that more aggressively and more intensively than anyone had done before. And, of course, that got him a bad rep within a, in a, a great deal of European culture and world culture thereafter. So he's an important figure, but he's one who's not necessarily looked upon with a great deal of sympathy by succeeding generations. His reign was immediately before... Um, that of Constantine, the first Christian emperor. So there's a great um, sort of clash between those two in their religious ideologies, but also a great deal of continuity, not just chronological continuity, but other aspects of political continuity in, in what those two guys um, sort of uh, uh, put, in, put into place. So he's, um, he, he's, he's an important figure um, for that reason. Um, but like many Roman emperors, as I'm sure we'll go on to discuss in the coming minutes, um, getting at the nature of the man as an individual is difficult, is difficult. And, and Diocletian throws particular challenges to us because of the nature of the source material that we can uh, we can interrogate. So um, I hope that uh, I hope that I can tell uh, tell the listeners some interesting stuff about him anyway. Okay, Roger. So that's let's let's work into the details then on this topic. So, um, what's known about when and where he was born? 
Well, both of those, both the when and the where, are slightly problematic. We don't have absolutely definitive um, answers to either of those, but it is probably um, it is probably the case that he was um, born in two forty three or um, 44 or 45 so round about then um, 43 44 or 45 um, some people have confidence in the specific birthday 22nd of December even if they don't have specific confidence in the date um, and the as to where well there's a there's a scholarly consensus that he came from Dalmatia that is essentially the uh, the uh, part of Croatia which is a coastal uh, country nowadays on the eastern east uh, the east coast of the uh, of the adriatic so across across from italy in the former yugoslavian uh, peninsula there um, but precisely where in dalmatia um, as as it was then called uh, he, he might have been born is not known our ancient sources are contradictory um, about this. Some, for example, um, say that he was born in the town to which he, where he also ended his life, um, Salona, uh, very close to the modern city of Split, which is the second biggest city uh, in, uh, in, in, in modern uh, Croatia. But a, but a different ancient source is kind of slightly infatuated with his name, Diocletian, and says that he is his name, Diocletian, comes from his birthplace, Diocleia, or Docleia, um, which is also the same source says his mother's name, um, which is kind of, uh, well, su suspicious, suspiciously uh, uh, tidy, uh, I, 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 I guess. But there is, there are remains of such a town, Docleia, in Montenegro, um, a, a, another nation bit further south, uh, south and, uh, and east of, of Croatia. So such a place did exist and, and, and remains are there, are there now. So I'm not sure necessarily a great deal hinges on whether he came from Doclea or whether he came from Salona, because what we're talking about here is essentially not Italian, not Gallic, uh, not Spanish. You know, we, we, we're talking about uh, an, uh, a guy who went on to be emperor who came from the, uh, the, 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 the Balkan Peninsula or the, 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 from, from, from former Yugoslavia. These same sources also, uh, so they do concur that he was not from a uh, well-heeled circumstance, you know, from a background. He was, uh, well, he was possibly the son of a scribe, uh, one source says, another suggests a freedman, that is to say a former slave. Uh, belonging belonging to an aristocrat, so not high-born himself. So that is already, I hope, interesting that someone from the provinces and not from a high-born uh, birth was ultimately able to become uh, become Roman emperor and effectively the most powerful man in the uh, in in the Mediterranean basin and wider. So uh, from humble. Croatian origins um, in the middle of the third century is, uh, in a nutshell, what we know about when and where. Okay, and you mentioned um, his mother in one of the sources. So, what what is known to scholars about his parents? Oh, very little, very little indeed. And one of the curious, and in fact, nothing more than I that nothing more than I've already told you, uh, mm -hmm. Andrew, that his, fa his father may have been a scribe. 
uh, but we don't know that person's name and uh, we don't know um we don't know anything about his mother other than her, her, her name there and because it coincides with the place name um scholars treat it with a, with a healthy degree of skepticism actually and fairly fairly strongly fairly strong we doubt that but it would be possible to um it's a little bit speculative, but it's not bonkers to kind of draw upon what we know of wider culture in Dalmatia at the time to uh, conclude that, yeah, it would it would have been he, he would have been probably Latin speaking, although his original name was Diocles, not uh, not Diocletian or in, it, or in its Latinized version, Diocletianus. Um, but one of our sources tells us that he was originally called Diocletianus. Diocles, which which is a, which is a Greek um, form. Now, this is because that coast of uh, the Dalmatian coast um, of modern Croatia um, will have had various Greek colonies um, sort of established in previous centuries, and so there would have been sort of pockets of some Hellenic, that, that is Greek culture um there which we can see in, Di in diocletian's original name there but perhaps the romans were more interested in dalmatia than uh, the, than the greeks had been probably because to control the croatian seaboard was strategically significant um, to the romans um it's uh, a lot a lot of uh, shipping would have gone up and down the adriatic and therefore a lot of piracy and a lot of trade and so to control that area would have been very important to roman strategic ambitions and so um we know that the, the expanding Roman Empire from the second century before the modern era and, and in the centuries following, that area was increasingly Romanized. So with cities with identifiably Roman cultural practices, such as Latin inscriptions in, in surviving tombstones, uh, for, 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 for example. So it's reasonable to assume that, that although we don't know much, we know very little about Diocletian's family background, it will have been identifiably Roman in culture rather than Greek or other uh, in, 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 its, in, its culture, in its cultural practices. And so therefore, it perhaps wouldn't have been particularly remarkable that this guy, Diocles, Diocletian, went on in his earlier career to uh, to be a Roman soldier uh, and, and we know that's the kind of career path that, uh, that, that that he pursued okay so it's the mid third century when Diocletian is a youth and a, and a teenager he's it's the early period of his his life can you describe in the mid third century what the Roman Empire would have been demarcated to geographically and uh, what the ge at a high level, what the geopolitical environment would have been like in Rome at that period of time? Yes. Okay. There's so two 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 big big questions there. The Roman Empire was in its geographical uh, largest, its maximal state, um, 150 years before Diocletian was born under the Emperor Trajan, when Trajan expanded the empire by uh, conquering Dacia, which largely aligns with uh, modern Romania. Um, and at that point, the Roman Empire was at its largest ever. And the Roman Empire experienced contractions um, over, over, the, over the following centuries. 
Um, but at this at this point in the middle of the third century, so technically the Roman Empire, the geography of the Roman Empire um, was vast, um, inclu including North Africa, uh, the Iberian Peninsula, right up to uh, northern Britain um, in, in, and and and. and Gaul, that is to say, uh, modern-day France, Belgium, and uh, the Low Countries, um, and ran th through round to the Levant as well. So it was still, it was still enormous. It, it was still enormous, though not quite as big as it had been um, under the Emperor um, Trajan. In terms of the ge geopolitics, um, the third century was fraught especially the middle, the middle of the third century, from so say two hundred and thirty-eight through to when Diocletian became emperor um, in 284, um, there were many emperors who did not manage to hold on to power for very long. So it was it was it was kind of um, fraught. West, depending how you count them and how and, and what confidence you have in the various sources that we have for this period, there could have been anywhere between 30 um, to 50 um, emperors uh, in in that 50 year period or so. So. Uh, brutal cycles of uh, civil war, and I know you've been, you, on this podcast you've heard about civil wars recently from from, from Adrastos Amissi, uh, civil wars and political assassinations. So, um, very few of the emperors who held power from 238 through to 284 died peacefully. Uh, they either died in civil war. Um, or by assassination, some died uh, in, in in conflict with uh, with forces outside the Roman Empire in sort of frontier frontier battles. Some died of illness um, uh, as well. But I, I think I think um, only one or two of them actually died natural deaths uh, in, in in that period. And in terms of the geography uh, of the political authority here. Um, Unsurprisingly, given the huge geography of the empire and the number of men who claimed imperial power, and we are just talking about men here, the number of men who claimed political or for ultimate political authority in that period, very few of them managed to claim political authority over the whole empire. So it was quite fractional and sort of um, regional. Um, and so perhaps the best examples of this would be a sort of separatist Gallic uh, Empire and under a man called Posthumus in northern Gaul, so, so north east France nowadays, and through into uh, into 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 the west of modern Germany, um, from two hundred uh, in the in the two sixties through to early two seventies, um, and a similar separatist uh, regime under an empress Zenobia uh, in Syria in in, in, in Palmyra in the in, at, a, at a similar time. So there were threats of geographical division. Uh, in 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 the Roman world um, at the time, not very long lived actually, um, but the, but but there were there were there was the possibility that the Roman world was going to just kind of break up into uh, into much smaller regional kingships, emperorships, that 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 that's that sort of thing at the time. So yeah, it was it was a fraught time, the mid third century. You mentioned it was likely that he was a soldier. Um, in his uh, younger years. Mm -hmm. um, so what's known about how he became emperor? Um, well, yeah, that's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a good question. 
Um, and in some respects, Andrew, the, his rise to power was perhaps not particularly surprising or unique in comparison with the rise to power of many of his immediate predecessors as emperor. A lot of these guys were soldier emperors who kind of hacked and stabbed their way to power. Um, and, you know, if you had the backing of enough uh, of enough soldiers or enough legionaries, uh, you, you, you could possibly make a, a plausible bid um, for, for, for power. So it perhaps wasn't hugely, it perhaps wasn't hugely surprising. We do know some of the details about um, about Diocletian's um, rise to power. It's um, we, we don't know we don't know where he first went um, as 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 a soldier. Um, but a very unreliable source called the Historia Augusta, which would uh, sometimes referred to in English as the uh, the Augustan history, written m sort of 100 years or so after um, after Diocletian was dead, uh, has some anecdotal references to his pre-imperial life on campaign in Gaul, so modern France. But so much of that text is considered. Uh, unreliable that it's 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 dangerous to have confidence in any of it in any of its anecdotal claims but it's possible that Diocletian spent some of his early military career on campaign in uh, in, in Gaul um, another source tells us that he held the position uh, as uh, military governor of Moesia um, in uh, sort of it, it also in the Balkans further north and east um, of, of Croatia and sources are pretty consistent in telling us that just before he became emperor he held the position really as the um chief of the um the imperial bodyguard um so he he, he was the sort of commander of the of, of the household troops to the emperor carus um who who, who 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 was emperor just before just before he was um now to have attained that position, he must have had a distinguished military career already um, and have been trusted um, by, by the Emperor Paris. Um, so uh, he, 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 he must have had some credentials that we don't know about um, uh, to, to have attained that position. Also, by dint of the fact he held that position, he will have accompanied Karras pretty much everywhere he went uh, in, during his reign as emperor, and we know that that included going over to, to sort of confront Persian threats in the eastern frontier, so crossing the Tigris, in fact, and uh, making an assault on uh, the, the, the Persian city of Ctesiphon. So Diocletian, or Diocles, as he would have been known at that time, was almost certainly there. Now, if, uh, these are kind of... I'm pulling together lots of bits of evidence, none of which is necessarily, not all of which is necessarily hugely reliable. But here we've got, say, evidence to suggest he was a soldier in Gaul, a soldier in the Balkan Peninsula, sorry, Peninsula, and a soldier on the Persian frontier. That is to say, a well-traveled, experienced uh, soldier. So he will have seen a lot of different people. He will have been close to 
powerful soldiers and powerful soldiers were kingmakers in the in the third century so if he wasn't necessarily a kingmaker himself he will have he will have seen or heard of other men who were kingmakers uh, in that period so he might have got inspiration for his own bit of power by watching other people do their stuff um now of course um i talked about you've got to trust uh, important political figures have to be able to trust their bodyguards it is quite possible that diocletian also hacked and stabbed his way to power to answer your question absolutely directly it is possible that um he was responsible for Carus's death but the texts don't say that that's just my common sense telling me that it's possible that diocletian did that the circumstances of Carus's death are not entirely clear the sources suggest that it might have been illness and it might have been um, struck by lightning but one can imagine in a pre-internet pre pre-press uh, environment um, it might have suited the emperor's bodyguard for everyone to believe that the emperor had been killed by illness or by a lightning strike or something like that when in fact he might have been he might have been responsible um, for that uh, himself when Carus died in those circumstances he had two sons who were at the time his co-emperors as it were carinus um, and, and numerianus and um well they they had they were they were an inconvenience i suppose for anybody who 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 wanted to be the next um, who wanted to be the next uh, uh, emperor and um well numerianus died in um very ill understood circumstances um and um possibly diseased possibly assassinated um possibly assassinated by a man called Aper, A-P-E-R, um, who was his own father-in-law, um, in, in fact. Um, but Aper didn't live very long after that incident because he himself was killed by Diocletian um, for having killed uh, Numerian, uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you follow the thread of that. So there was a, a, a lot of assassination going on. Diocletian was heralded as the new emperor on the on the death of numerianus whatever the circumstances of, 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 of that of that death were and it was at that point that he killed Aper, um in in vengeance he claimed for uh, for, for having for the, for the death of numerian and then the following um the the, the following year um 285 uh diocletian confronted the remaining son of Carus, that was Carinus, uh, in battle. Um, and, uh, well, Carinus's men uh, probably turned uh, turned him in uh, or turned on him, uh, in, in, in fact. And so that, that battle um, was finished very quickly with the death of Carinus, leaving Diocletian sole emperor. So, sorry, short answer to your question, uh, 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 Andrew. Um, Diocletian probably took advantage of his position as bodyguard chief bodyguard to the emperor to, to either 
create a vacancy for the emperorship or to take advantage of the vacancy that other people had created um, for, for, for the emperorship. And, uh, and, and, and so he became emperor in, uh, in 284. So in this chronology, we're at the point now that uh, he was emperor of, of, of Rome. So, so what would you say... Um, Okay, so let's start here. What would you, during his reign, what do you think his overarching, and you might have to infer a little bit, but what do you think his overarching uh, a goal or goals were as emperor of, of, of Rome? And, and it's purposely broad. You could take it from a foreign policy perspective. You could take it from uh, um, policies within the empire itself or for the constituents. What do you think his, his major aspirations or, or goals were as uh, emperor of, of of rome at least in this kind of initial period of time in his in in his reign thanks now that that is as i'm sure you know that's a, that's a huge question and the answer will it require quite a lot of uh in inference because there's no there would be no manifesto um you know no, no sort of public statements of of, of, of of political ambition so we just have to infer from what happened what he might have wanted but any sensible any sensible emperor in the in the late third century would have in the first instance wanted to ensure that they could stay emperor for quite a long time because people had failed to do that for 50 years. And so each new emperor would want to surround themselves with reliable people, who trustworthy people who could ensure their safety uh, before they could, um, before they could probably turn their attention to wider policy matters be that uh, be, 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 be that domestic matters or foreign policy uh, for, for foreign policy uh, issues but if you think of the problems that had beset the Roman world in the middle of the third century no it wasn't it wasn't just of constitutional crises of many men holding power for only a couple of years or even in some cases only a few months at a time but there were economic pressures there was there were threats of separatism there were pressures on the frontiers uh, for, from from uh, for, from uh, from barbarian forces as as, as 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 we refer to them um so all sorts of different all sorts of different pressures on roman society and diocletian in various ways and with various uh, successes and failures did try to address the whole raft of kind of uh, problems that there had been so um, foreign policy domestic policy um, and fiscal and that is to say tax taxation and and legal measures that he introduced um, over the next so 21 years between 284 through to 305 when his reign when his reign uh, came to an end um, but I, I, I suspect his initial his his initial concern was pretty brutally militaristic. Um, he, he he became emperor in two hundred eighty four. He still had to get rid of Carinus, um, so that was his immediate concern because Carinus would not have been. Uh, likely to go into some sort of uh, as it were imperial league with him and that that that, that would be 
unheard of uh, in the Roman world. That was that was they, they, they were clearly going to fight um, to see who was who was going to be top dog, and so that would have been Diocletian's immediate uh, concern. He was very successful, really quite quickly in doing that. But kind of extraordinarily, what he then did was then appoint a co-emperor. Um, and he, he appointed a, a co-emperor, probably initially, this isn't, isn't certainly attested, but probably initially with the rank of Caesar, as opposed to Diocletian's rank as Augustus. Um, now, these are both, you know, in, in the late Republic and early Imperial period, those are names of individuals. But by late antiquity, Augustus was the highest imperial rank and, the, and Caesar was the, uh, was the subordinate imperial rank in these sort of imperial colleges, as it were. So Diocletian established an imperial college probably with himself as Augustus and with his fellow emperor Maximian with the position of Caesar. And that was done very quickly, um, and that enabled Diocletian to then attend to critical points in the Mediterranean um, without having to look over his shoulder. Um, quite, quite so anxiously all of the time. So Maximian was dispatched to Gaul to kind of crush an uprising by people who are only murkily understood, known as the Bagaldi, but they were clearly making a nuisance of themselves um, in, in Gaul. So Maximian was sent, Maximian as Caesar was sent to Gaul to crush the Bagaldi, and meantime Diocletian could attend to the eastern frontier here. So you see, his, his first, his absolutely first uh, priority was military security, both against an internal threat there in Gaul and on external threats on the on the on the eastern frontier. But as his um, as his reign matured, and as the years went by, um, not without some pains, not without considerable pains that he had to take, um, he secured the frontiers in ways that lasted for particularly the eastern frontier um, for four decades or so which in which perhaps doesn't strike us nowadays as being you know particularly long-lasting uh, achievement but in in the context of the third century that was a really considerable victory that diocletian and his fellow and his imperial college managed to secure and that that really wasn't done and dusted till the late 290s so that did take a fair time for Diocletian uh, to do that and there were internal challenges to his, to his reign as well um, so um, not not just Carinus but um, um, in 287 um, a man called Carousius who was a Roman soldier responsible for fleet movements in the uh, in the Channel, so between continental Europe and and, and southern England, um, set up a sort of separatist regime um, that basically constituted ge geographically Britain and the northern reaches of France, um, and Carousius's regime was. Um, a, a challenge to, to Diocletian that Diocletian was not prepared to tolerate and had to overcome. So there were flies in the ointment in, in, his, in his attempt to secure uh, peace. To go back to your question, Andrew, he, Diocletian didn't really look to expand the geography of the Roman Empire 
but to consolidate it, to, you know, to, to, to shore up the frontiers as he had inherited them. Um, but he brooked no challenge to his no uh, no no sort of civil war challenges. Those were crushed um, ruthlessly. It took time to crush the Karazian uh, separatist um, regime, but Diocletian seems never to have uh, entertained the idea that he would um, he would accept Karazius as a, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a fellow um, emperor. And as he gained as his imperial college gained in um, get, strengthened its grip on the uh, on, on the frontiers um, and uh, and crushed uh, opposition internally he was then able to uh, attend a little bit more diligently perhaps to other measures that he would like to like to introduce um, so uh, fiscal reform religious reform and civil and civil administrative legal um, re re reforms reforms as well so there's a whole raft of different things that he undertook as emperor but i imagine in 284 his initial concern was just holding on to power and uh, what's 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 interesting here is that I, I think is that he realized he couldn't do it by himself um, and, and so appoint, and appointed his fellow emperor Maximian um, and, and that imperial college is now referred to that imperial college of two is now referred to in, in modern scholarship as the diarchy which just means the power the power of two the power of two individuals the diar the diarchs uh, Diocletian and and Maximian um, and that's was to be expanded in time to what we now refer to as the tetrarchy, um, the, 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 the power of four. And that came into being in 293, when another two men were appointed to this expanded imperial college um, of four, a man called Constantius and another man, Galerius. Those two, with the rank of Caesar, each of them subordinate to their own Augustus. So, um, so Galerius was Caesar to Diocletian Augustus, and Constantius was Caesar to Maximian um, Augustus. There. So, and again, these men were not. Well, what's curious about this is that what's kind of novel about this is not so much the idea of an imperial college, because one could define the previous reign, Carus with his sons Carinus and Numerianus as an imperial college. But what's kind of extraordinary and groundbreaking about Diocletian's diarchy and then the expanded version of the Tetrarchy is that these people were not his sons or his, or his blood relatives. Um, th these were, well, we don't know in fact how he knew all these men, but they were career soldiers also from the uh, the Balkan Peninsula, so presumably he knew them as reliable messmates um, from those decades, the two sixties, two seventies, whenever Diocletian was doing his, uh, you know, was was earning his stripes um, a, 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 as a soldier himself. But by expanding the number of emperors to four, he was able to expand the number of places where an emperor could be at any one time. Um, and so these guys didn't meet very often, very rarely, in fact. Um, but they had their own sort of spheres of geographical um, control. Um, and 
that gave the, that gave the Roman world, as it were, more capital cities than it than it had ever had before. So, for example, one emperor would typically be placed would be situated in uh, um, uh, Trier, which is in modern Germany. Um, another in Milan, in northern Italy. Uh, Diocletian himself in Nicomedia, uh, which is in modern Turkey, um, and Galerius in in, in Sirmium, That's that's in modern Serbia. So you have what what we now refer to as provincial capitals, provincial capitals, and and this would allow these guys to be. Um, in many places, it would it would allow government to be in many places at one time, but to still be coherent and sort of uh, or uh, operating in some sort of operating with some sort of teamwork providing they kept in communication um, with each other and could trust each other so if that expansion of government enabled Diocletian to um, then put in place some of the, the policies that, that he did in, in, in the two, in the 290s um, and following one of scholarship's big sort of head-scratching points in relation to these, this expansion of government from one, Diocletian himself, to two, that's the diarchy with Maximian, to four, with the Tetrarchy, including Constantius and Galerius, is whether or not Diocletian had always had this in mind, or whether he was, as it were, on the hoof, um, extemporizing according to, according to the crisis. Um, so, um, so for, for example, it's entirely possible that Maximian was originally sent over to Gaul with the rank of Caesar to beat up the Bagaudi, which he did very successfully. But at that moment, Diocletian might have realised that Maximian was now a potential threat because he had a successful military record, he had soldiers who were backing him, and, they, and, and therefore he possibly had soldiers who didn't want simply to be soldiers to, uh, to a Caesar, they wanted, to be, they wanted to be soldiers who were answerable to an Augustus. So maybe that promotion from Maximian, uh, sorry, of Maximian from Caesar to Augustus um, was, was fought upon Diocletian ra rather, than, uh, rather than it being something he'd had in mind. Uh, if, if you see what I mean. So the extent to which these massive constitutional changes were long planned isn't clear in the absence of a manifesto. So I want to uh, revisit the Tetrarchy near the end of the conversation, Roger, when we're speaking about his succession in the later period of his life. A uh, few things um, before we get there. So what's known about his personal religious orientation? And you mentioned, um, uh, I'll use the term policies, but you mentioned his approach to, I believe you use the term uh, religious reforms. So what's known about his approach to religion as well in the, um, in the empire? Okay, there, there are two dimensions to this really. One is how aggressively he persecuted Christians, uh, for which he's most famous perhaps. And the other is, his, um, his, his steadfast commitment to pretty traditional paganism. Um, in 287 or thereabouts, Diocletian and Maximian, his fellow Augustus, adopted um, uh, new names which, 
which we refer to in Latin as signa, or, 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 the, or, or the singular word signum, and Diocletian adopted the signum Jovius, which means sort of related to Jove or Jupiter in some respects. And meantime, Maximian adopted the signum Herculeus, which means somehow related to Hercules. Um, so they're not quite claiming to be Jupiter and Hercules, but they are. They have some sort of kinship with those particular uh, religious stroke mythological figures. Now that is um that, that is aligned with traditional pagan uh, belief it also suggests suggests the divinity of the emperor it doesn't absolutely explicitly assert it but it is suggestive of their superhuman status there so that's um that, that, that was groundbreaking in some respects, but also traditional in other respects, because it's not, it's not completely new religion, of course, to be, to, to be citing names such, such as Jupiter um, or Hercules. And they were very keen on, they were very keen builders of, uh, of, of, of pagan temples and, and, and the, the, those sort of traditional practices um, there, uh, Andrew. But in terms of Christianity, they were not at all sympathetic to Christianity. They were not the first emperors to persecute Christians. Um, there, ha there had been various third century and earlier um, legal measures against those practicing the Christian faith. But the persecution of Christians enacted by Diocletian and his fellow emperors in, 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 in the year 303 and, and following was wide, wider in scale and fiercer in intensity than had been seen before um and so it ramped up it was it it, it, uh, it, it was it, 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 it was enacted in various stages of increasing ferocity um o o over o over the next few years and resulted in many deaths uh, of christians not um, particularly christian leaders you know uh, cl uh, clergy and clerics um, and, and such People were given. Some people were given opportunity to renounce the faith, but um, many chose not to, and were then the subjects of Christian martyr stories um, that, that, that we still have. Uh, that, we, that we still have today. So um, clearly, the uh, the great persecution was not successful. It did not crush uh, the Christian faith, and in fact, the next emperor. Uh, after after the demise, the ultimate demise of the Tetrarchy, Constantine uh, patronised the church uh, to. Um, I, I mean, I mean that in the sense of uh, put money in, 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 into the church, and uh, before very long, you know, the state and church were very closely aligned. So um, much as Diocletian tried to stamp out Christianity, he failed. He failed miserably. Is it believed that Diocletian was polytheist? Yes, um, yes, in in the traditional Roman pagan sense um, of, of, of that, yes. Um, but but Jupiter, Jupiter, Jove, Zeus, the different names for the same uh, different names for the same uh, Greco-Roman god. There was his favourite one, um, uh, as, as as it were. But yes, um, he, he he will have been a a, a, a pagan um, in the in the relatively traditional sense of of, of respecting. The whole pantheon um, of the of the Roman world, but not being prepared to welcome into that pantheon um, the the, the, Christ, the Christian faith or the Manichaean faith, uh, which which had which had come out of third century Persia as well. That was also crushed or 
persecuted by Diocletian. But these, um, his, his ambition there, as a, as a, as a uh, his ambition was huge. But I think not. A, he was unsuccessful in his attempts to control the way people's faith was conducted. But he was probably naive in thinking that he could control it. Um, actually, and it's not the only example of some of his naivety uh, in in office. Yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned Constantine, and uh, so a few different episodes on this show has has uh, the uh, Constantine's adoption of Christianity has come up several times in different episodes. Um, on the podcast okay uh what's known about uh if he was married how many times and uh number of known children uh yeah this, it's it's an interesting one he was married um he was married to a woman called prisca about whom we know nothing else and they had a daughter uh valeria about whom not much is known um but she, um, she, at the creation of the Tetrarchy or thereabouts in the year 293, she was married to, she was married off to Galerius, so um, the, the Caesar in, in, the, in this new political sort of constellation. Um, now that marriage would not, not, not have been based on love. That would, that was clearly a sort of way of, of, of establishing political um, alliance. And after Galerius's death. Um, uh, Paul Valeria was then uh, w w was was then sort of pursued by other uh, emperors, and she did she she didn't like that, um, and and uh, both Prisca and Valeria um, were ulti ultimately met their deaths at the hands of Licinius, who was rival to Constantine in the three teens. Um, Diocletian's last few years of life were spent in a in retirement, quite extraordinary uh, in, in their own world, in, uh, in the massive palace that one can still visit in Split um, in Croatia. It's one of the great tourist attractions, a UNESCO World Heritage Site in Croatia there. Diocletian was in that building for the last few years of his life, sending letters to Licinius, asking Licinius to return Prisca, his wife, and Valeria, his daughter, to him. But he, ne he sadly, he ne sadly for him, he never, he never saw them again. Um, he, he, he was separated uh, from them uh, towards the end of towards the end of his life. But we know of no other children it, it, from the marriage between Prisca and, and Diocletian, and this is curious. No son, no son. Now that might the the fact that he didn't have a son might have been part of the reason why he cultivated this non dynastic mode um, of imperial succession where he, he appointed as co-emperors people who weren't related to him um, uh, it, it, both in the diarchy and then in the expanded version in, in, in the tetrarchy um, and curiously when the tetrarchy came into power uh, sorry came into being excuse me in the year 293 um, with the appointment of um, Constantius and Galerius a man who was not welcomed into power there, or person who was not welcomed into power, was Maxentius, who was Maximian's son. So Maxentius was overlooked there um, in, in the appointments to, to the emperorship. So Diocletian didn't have a son, but he also ignored the son of his fellow, um, his fellow Augustus Maximian when the Tetrarchy came into being. So that was a novel 
and actually short-lived aspect of dietitian's sort of uh, uh, constitutional reform, um, the, the the attempt to move away from dynastic succession as a as as, as a mode of inherit uh, as as a mode of transition of power from one generation um, through to the next. Diocletian clearly tried to do away with that, but as your previous correspondents who have talked to you about Constantine will have will have made made absolutely clear, I'm sure. Um, Constantine just reintroduced the idea of dynastic succession as when he died in the year 337, power was assumed by his by his his sons. Um, so 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 this idea of moving away from dynastic succession didn't last very long. So some closing questions, Roger. Um, why do you think he? And we'll probably naturally revisit the tetrarchy in in uh, some of these um, kind of um, final final uh, the final dialogue. Why do you think he retired? I've, I've been racking my brains about this, Andrew, for about twenty years, and I don't know. I don't know, and I don't know because the ancient sources don't know. And if you look at what the ancient sources say, the way they rationalise that retirement in 305, he was the first Roman emperor um, to, to, to retire. Um, there was no advance notice that it was going to happen. Um, and there, there's evidence to suggest that it was a very rushed decision. So, for example, that some of the architecture in 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 his house in the, this fantastic villa in Split looks like it was kind of badly done, because it was perhaps done at breakneck speed. Um, so, quite why he did it isn't known. But some of the sources say suggest that he was bullied into it by Galerius, his uh, his, his co-tetrarch. That you know, Galerius was fed up of playing second fiddle, as it were, and wanted wanted to uh, wanted to be the uh, the principal Augustus himself, and forced Diocletian and Maximian into retirement. I'm not entirely comfortable with that because um, Diocletian had been so decisive and so strong in his decision making. In the, uh, in, 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 in the previous 20 years, that I, I, I'm, I'm, I find it hard to believe that he then just caved in when under pressure um, from, uh, from Galerius. And, and the, um, the, the, uh, the, the source that suggests that it was Galerius is, is a, is a pro-Christian source that hated Galerius. Because uh, Galerius was was a very aggressive persecutor of Christians, so there are reasons to doubt the to doubt the um, the, the reliability um, of that particular source. Um, it's possible that he just had enough. It 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 it, it, it is it is it is possible, um, Andrew. But um, the fact that he didn't give advance notice of his retirement is is interesting he might he might have planned to retire for some years but not told anybody now in the ancient world if you told someone that you were planning to retire that would probably precipitate a civil war as the as the next guys in power the wannabes in power start agitating posturing and stabbing um so that they could they could become they could become the next emperor so it's possible that diocletian had had it in mind to retire for some years but 
some of the measures, some of the radical measures that he introduced, that some of the most radical measures that he introduced, such as, for example, the persecution of Christians or attempts to um, control the way, the amount of money people spent on things by a very interventionist legal measure known as the Edict of Maximal Prices, only predate his retirement by very few years. So those policies hadn't really been given time to work. So, it's, so it's, it's almost as if his retirement does look precipitate. That doesn't make me, none, nonetheless, that doesn't incline me to believe he was bullied into retirement um, by, by, by Galerius. Maybe there were health issues that we don't know about. I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't know. Okay. And, uh, yeah, and I was going to ask you if there's anything in the records about his, uh, his health, but, but that, nothing in the records about his level of health when he retired. Um, n- n- nothing consistent. No- no- nothing consistent. Um, but the, um, the, the, the sources that... The sources that we have are contradictory, you know, and and some of them some of them are just dated just a few years after his retirement, some several decades, and some many centuries um, after his retirement. But they're not consistent, which suggests to me that that it wasn't well known why Diocle, why Diocletian had, had, had retired. Um, um, and similarly, the circumstances of his death, um, which, which we, we don't know for certain when he died. We know where he died, but we don't quite know when and we don't quite know how he died. It could, the, the different sources say suicide, um, just death through, um, death through poison, death through um, anguish and sort of neglect, just kind of withering away out of out of despair for, for for various crimes, as it were, that he had committed throughout his life. Crimes, um, as a Christian would term it, you know, crimes crimes against the Christian faith, or just anguish that he wasn't able to spend his uh, his retirement with his wife and daughter, and he just kind of um, um, just kind of uh, uh, wasted away. But the, the sources are clearly ideologically driven um, and uh, you know some are, some are aggressively Christian some are aggressively defensive of Diocletian and so they contradict each other and so for that reason having clear sense of the circumstances of his death is beyond us closing question Roger whether directly or indirectly what do you think the long-term influences Diocletian's life had on history was I think there, 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 this is twofold one is that many of the administrative uh, measures that he introduced that he kind of forced through such as the separation between civilian and military command in the provinces the expansion of the number of provinces he almost doubled the number of provinces in the Roman world by by cutting them in half rather than um, rather than uh, uh, winning over new territories um, and putting more civil servants into office than had ever been there before that was continued by constantine and uh, and other emperors in the in the fourth century and so you could see that he he put in place measures which did have um, a sort of a, a, a life long long after his death 
um, and the, the, the sense of a much more bureaucratized, much more efficient tax collection system um, than, than had been the case in the, in, the, in, the, in the third century. But on the other hand, longer term, his reputation is dominated his later reputation is dominated by Christian narratives, which demonise him for, uh, for for being a persecute for being the persecutor of Christians, um, and and therefore you know one of the, one 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 of the figures from the Roman world, whom later European culture wanted to demonise. There is a lot of material here, Roger. If you're interested in sometime, I'd love to have you back on the show and maybe we can unpack one or more of these topics more and, and, and turn them into episodes. I'd love to. Episodes. I'd love to. Um, yeah, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed chatting with you. This has been, yeah, been a pleasure, Roger, speaking with you today. You have a lot of knowledge on this topic. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Andrew, and uh, look forward to chatting to you again sometime. Thanks very much. Sounds great. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Reese wrote, Diocletian and the Tetrarchy, I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Roger and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.